This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Galatians chapter 6. And just one verse, Galatians 6, verse 14. Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the heart of Christianity is the Bible. At the heart of the Bible is Christ. At the heart of Christ's message is the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel is Christ's cross. It is central. And coming up to this Easter weekend, uh, I want to bring that to the fore in our thoughts again tonight. The book of Isaiah in the Bible is like the Bible in condensed form. There are 66 books in the Bible, and Isaiah has 66 chapters. In the Bible, 39 of those books represent the Old Testament, 27. The last 27 represent the New Testament. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah speaks of sin and judgment and the wrath of God. The last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah speak of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the turning point is chapter 40 of Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah, if that represented, just say, the new, Isaiah's New Testament, just say, then at the center of the New Testament is the cross. So if you take 39 chapters and add 14, you get 53 chapters. And what does it say in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And so the cross is central. It's at the heart of all God's dealings with men. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Let's see how central, how important the cross is to God and to man. First of all, it's the great divider. It marks the boundary line between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It challenges men to make a decision, to decide which kingdom am I going to live for. There are only two kingdoms, and we have to live either for one or for the other. There is no neutrality when it comes to Christ and his cross. It is the battlefield in which God and the devil fight for the sovereignty of men's precious souls. It separates men into two classes, the saved and the unsaved, the lost and the found. There is a separation when it comes to the cross. A demarcation line is firmly drawn, and we're either on one side of it or the other side of it, but we cannot be somewhere in the middle. In Matthew chapter 10, 
Jesus speaking. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Then he says these strange words. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be of those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be of those of his own household. And Jesus knew what he was talking about. He had opposition at home. His brethren did not believe in him. They did not believe in him until after the resurrection. Remember one time when it came to the feast and they said, are you not going up to the feast like us? Don't you want to show yourself? You think you're the Messiah? Would this not be an ideal time then for you, very sarcastically, facetiously, to show yourself to the people? That's how bad things were. Remember the angel said to Mary, and a sword shall pierce your own soul also. And so very often what we find is if you accept Christ, it brings a sword. Sometimes right into the very family. Maybe between a husband and a wife, or a mother and a father, or a brother or a sister, or whatever. And sometimes that sword is in the workplace. Sometimes it's in school or in the university. Sides are taken. People has their opinion. And sometimes people just turn off you, or maybe even worse, turn against you. But that's part of the cross. And it's part of what we have to bear sometimes, the cross. And so he said, I've come to bring a sword. I've come to draw a line. And you have to choose which side of the line you're going to be on. And let me tell you, these days we're living in, that sword is going to be seen much more prominently in a much more definite way. Uh, and if we're wishy-washy and, and kind of uh, <laughs> about our Christianity, it's going to be tested. And we can see the tests are coming on. We just talked a moment ago about the Asher's case. The test is there. Even a public test is coming. It's the great divider. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, I mentioned this morning, Brother Wilson standing out in Moyer here with a cross for 40 days, and I had the opportunity a couple of Sundays ago standing with him, and he said, you know, you get all kinds of responses and just as he said that, we got exactly that. He says, you know, many people drive past and they took the horn to give us the thumbs up. But he says, there's others drive past and it's not the thumbs up they give us. 
And just by that, somebody took up the horn and we looked. He says, see what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's people who'll walk past him and they'll think it's wonderful what he's doing. More power to him. Good on you, brother. There's other people who walk past and they'll just think he's absolutely nuts. That he's crazy. Why in the world would he do that? And sometimes it could be a so-called believer that may say that. It brings a sword. Very definite thing. It's the great divider. It's the great revealer. It reveals the hatred of man for God, but it reveals the love of God for man. At the cross, sin is seen at its worst, but grace is seen at its best. It reveals the rebellion of men and the obedience of Christ. It reveals the wicked hands of sinners, what they did to the wonderful hands of the Savior. Peter, in his first great sermon the day of Pentecost, he said, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. Stephen, the first martyr, said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. Stephen was very bold against the religious crowd, wasn't he? And I mean, he nailed his colors firmly to the mast. The cross is the great revealer. The cross reveals the day of man's greatest crime and the day of God's greatest compassion. No more wicked deed was ever done than that totally innocent, pure, holy, righteous man being lied about, being falsely accused, being beaten and whipped, and finally nailed naked to a cross. Man at his very worst, and yet it was God at his very best. The cross is the great revealer. The cross is the great offender. Paul said to the church at Galatia, chapter 5, verse 11, And I, brethren... If I preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. What was Paul saying? Well, if, if, we, if we understood that Galatians, that the Galatian church, who were believers who had come out of Judaism, now were believers in Christ, but false teachers had come in, Judaizers, these who taught that you have to mix the law and grace. Yes, it's fine for you to be now a Christian, but you have to mix that with the law of Moses also. And you have to carry out all those ceremonial laws as well to be a good Christian. And the Apostle Paul was mad at that because there was a danger that they would slip back into that bondage again that God had delivered them from. God had brought them into grace rather than all that ceremonial law that was strangling them. They couldn't keep the Ten Commandments anyway. No man can. But they had all these laws that they continued with. And so Paul writes, and he says, listen, if I was preaching the law and preaching the ceremonial law, I wouldn't be suffering persecution. 
But because I'm preaching the cross, there's an offense with the cross. That's why I'm being persecuted. He made absolutely sure that we knew that the cross is going to offend. I, I read yesterday Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, he wrote a report that 300 churches in a province of China has been absolutely destroyed, raised to the ground, and all crosses are to be taken from public display. It is an offense to the atheistic mind. We see in recent times those ISIS, those jihadists who are slaughtering Christians, tribes, families, persecuting them, putting them to the sword, cutting their very heads off. Tearing down, I saw a picture recently where they're up on top of a church roof, tearing down the cross because it offended them. Ironically, the same people who are doing that believe that Jesus was a prophet. He's in the Quran, and they believe he was a prophet and he was a good man, but they do not believe that he went to the cross to save us from our sins. They do not believe that. The Muslim believes that. He's a prophet and he's a good man, but he's not the savior. And so they tear down the cross. It is an offense uh, to them. In America, first of all, prayer was removed from the schools. Then the Ten Commandments has been removed from many courts in many states. And the excuse is in cases in case it influences people. <laughs> what better influence could you have than the Ten Commandments? And now the secularists and the humanists are doing everything they can to remove all religious symbols from society, especially Christian ones, and most especially the cross. It offends them. It offends religious people and it offends even the atheists and the humanists. The cross is an offense. It's an offense to man's pride because the cross says to man, you're guilty of the blood of Christ. You're guilty of Christ going to the cross. It's your sins that put Christ on that cross, and that offends the pride of man. It tells him that all his own righteousness is his filthy rags before a holy God, and that offends the pride of man. Man does not want to think of himself as bad as that. Oh, yes, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that. Yes, we are as bad as that. It was our sins that put Christ on that cross. It is offense to man's religion. It offends man to tell him that his religion, unless it is based on the cross of Christ, it's a sham. And it never works before God. And that's an offense to man's religion. Because man loves his religion. Religious people love religion. They absolutely love it. And I'll tell you why. Because they can measure themselves and measure others to themselves by their religion. And they will work very, very hard at it. The Pharisees excelled in religion. They were experts at it. They took the minutiae of the very law. In fact, they made up other laws to protect the Ten Commandments. 
They had 613 other laws. 248 were positive laws. And it meant you had to do something to favor God, to bless God. 348 were negative laws. And it's things you couldn't do. Because if you did do them, it would draw you further away from God. So that 613, imagine trying to keep 613 laws. No wonder Jesus says you put burdens upon men that they're not able to bear. And you don't lift one finger to help them. But the Pharisees loved religion. They excelled in it, but they hated Christ. They hated Christ. They despised him. Remember, it was the religious men who put Christ on the cross, wasn't it? Yes, technically it was the Romans who nailed him. But who was it who organized the courts? Who was it that got him before Pilate? It was the religious people. It was the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus came to fulfill the law and to abolish all of those ceremonial laws and all of those laws of man, that man made, he came to abolish them. And he came that he might show his grace, that we might walk in his grace. And so it offends man's religion. <coughs> the cross is an offense to man's philosophy. Why? Because you can't rationalize it and you can't intellectualize it. <laughs> It really doesn't make any sense outside of faith. It really doesn't. And we'll prove that to you in a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read this section from the New Living Translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll read from verse 18. I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy human wisdom and discard their most brilliant ideas. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant, brilliant debaters? Hey, if you want to see who Paul's talking about today, listen to those who rant and rave about evolution. Listen to the nonsense that they talk about. Listen to the absolute absurdity of what they're trying to put across. And these are supposed to be brilliant men, but it's worldly wisdom. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made them all to look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save all who believe. They can't find God through their human wisdom. It's a faith thing. It's a belief in a God that we've never seen, in a Savior we've never met. <laughs> See how ridiculous that can sound? But to us, it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. God's ways seem foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it's true. 
and it is foolish to the Greeks because they believe that only what agrees with their own wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the mighty power of God and the wonderful wisdom of God. This, quote unquote, this foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is far stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you who were wise in the world's eyes are powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose those who are powerless to, sh powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing the things that the world considers important so that no one can ever boast in his presence. Think of the ones that Jesus chose as his apostles. Not one of them, apart from Paul who later became an apostle, not one of them rabbinically trained, not one of them theologically educated, fishermen, tax collectors, ones often who were the despised ones, ones who were the lowly ones, the Galileans of all people, but Jesus deliberately chose them and gathered them around him. And with those men, he changed the world, didn't he? This is an offense to man's philosophy. Let me just read this. You don't need to turn to it. In Colossians 2, verse 4, and again reading from the New Living Translation, I am telling you this so that no one will be able to deceive you with persuasive arguments. For though I am far from you, my heart is with you. And I am very happy because you're living as you should and because you're strong of your strong faith in Christ. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to him. Let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him so you will grow in faith, strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. Don't, don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the evil powers of this world and not from Christ. Huh. Paul was a highly educated man, a brilliant mind. And here he's saying, listen, the human mind without God will talk nonsense and foolishness, and it will. Yes, the human mind can invent can create, can do all kinds of things. But when it comes down to living life, when it comes down for the reason for life, when it comes down why are we here and where are we going, then it's just foolishness. That's what Paul's saying. He says, don't listen to it. Listen to what God's saying. If the cross is not an offense, why do men resist it? They resist it because it offends. The cross is the great meeting place. God wanted to meet with man. Man needed to meet with God. But how can a holy God meet a sinful man? How can they be reconciled? 
a means of reconciliation and a place of reconciliation was required. In the Old Testament, the means was the blood of the sacrificial lamb. The place was the mercy seat in the holiest of holies. But that in itself was not enough for God. It was temporary. It just covered man's sins for a year, but it didn't change them, and it didn't give them power over sin. In the Old Testament, the place was that mercy seat, the holiest of holies. In the New Testament, the means was the blood of Christ, and the place was Calvary. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 9. And again, if you don't mind, I'll just read these few verses from the New Living Translation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that great, perfect sanctuary in heaven, not made by human hands and not part of this created world. Once for all time he took blood into that most holy place, but not the blood of goats and calves. He took his own blood, and with it he secured our salvation forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ritual defilement. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our hearts from deeds that lead to death so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And this is why he is the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, so that all who are invited can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sin that they had committed under that first covenant. And then chapter 10, the old system and the law of Moses was only a shadow of the things to come, not the reality of the good things Christ had done for us. The sacrifices under the old system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. And if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers now would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have been disappeared. But just the opposite happened. Those yearly sacrifices reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is why Christ, when he came into the world, said, You did not want animal sacrifices and grain offerings, but you have given me a body so that I may obey you. No, you were not pleased with animals burnt on the altar or with offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will of God, just as written about me in the scriptures. Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or grain offerings or animals burnt on the altar or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, although they were required by the law of Moses. Then he added, look, I have come to do your will. And he counsels out the first covenant in order to establish the second. And what God wants is for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands before the altar day after day offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as one sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down at the place of the highest honor at God's right hand. Glory to God. It's a great meeting place. Holman Hunt, in 1870, 
began to paint a most marvelous picture. It took him three years to complete it. It was called The Shadow of Death. You can Google it and see it. And in that picture, he portrays Christ as a young man in the carpenter's shop. And evidently, he had been working and sawing, and then he stood up and he stretched his two hands up to stretch. And just by that, a shaft of light comes through the window, and a shadow is on the back wall where there was a beam holding different tools. And it was as if he was nailed to that beam. And his mother's sitting, looking up at that. It's called the shadow of, the, of death. You should look that up on Google and see that. It's a wonderful image. And he's trying to present the image of the cross. Even when he was in the carpenter's shop, he was living under the shadow of death, knowing that the cross would one day come. It's the great meeting place. It's the great changing place. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that, we, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. The cross of Christ not only redeems men and recreates men, but it reconciles men to God. God wants men to be reconciled to him. And he's been very patient. And tender mercies has flowed from him. For over 2,000 years, he has waited and waited and waited and waited. Pleaded and pleaded and pleaded. Sent his spirit to convict, to convince, so that man may be reconciled to him. That's what the scriptures say. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviters, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he writes this, but such were some of you. But now you were washed, you were sanctified, but now you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We have a testimony tonight, a testimony of a changed life. And the cross changed our life. Maybe there was a time it was foolishness to you. Maybe there's a time you never even thought about it. Maybe there's a time you completely dismissed it. But then there came a time and a moment when the cross loomed large in your life and you realized that Christ died on that cross for you. And I realized he died for me. And at that moment, the cross became the great changing place. And our lives were changed forever. Hallelujah. Isn't it wonderful? Did I tell you when I come back from the Philippines? Remember before I left, I preached a sermon. I forget what it was now. But then somewhere in the middle of it, 
I gave a little testimony. Yes, I preached about uh, divine appointments. And I gave a little testimony how that all those years ago, Sally was going to the church at the time and her pastor saw, used to be a, a pop star on television giving his testimony, invited him over to Belfast to the church and I went to that service and I got saved that night. I was his only convert. He only came that weekend and he never came before and he never ever came again. That was 42 years ago. And as, as, as I stood at the back of the church that Sunday night when I said that, there was a gentleman and he, he visits from time to time. And he stopped me and he says, did you ever tell that man that story? I says, no, I never heard of him since, never seen him since. I says, I wonder, did you ever tell him? And that got me thinking. And so when I was in the Philippines, I thought, do you know what? It might be a good idea if it did tell him. So I, I Googled him and a website came up and there he was on it. He's still a musician. And there he was on it. But the website was old. I mean, it was years out of date. Obviously, we hadn't looked at it for years. And then I thought, do you know what? I'll see if I can Facebook him. Because half the world's on Facebook. So I put his name in and sure enough, he was on Facebook, and it was recent. I mean, he had posted something about an hour before that. So I quickly typed a whole message and told him what had happened to me because he made that one visit to Ireland, and I was his only convert. And to them, I'm a pastor, and my daughter's a missionary. And I thought... And then I said to him, I don't know where you stand today, whether you go to church or what you're doing, but... This is what's happened to me. And within an hour, he posted back privately. and Because I sent it privately. He said, thank you very much for telling me that. He says, I'm blessed to hear that. Because he probably didn't know or he had long since forgotten. Now, we've never, since that, we haven't been contacting each other. But I wonder what he's thinking I don't know whether he's walking with the Lord. I suspect he's not really going to church, actually. But it maybe made him think a little bit. At least when he was walking with the Lord, something good came out of that. Amen? It's a great changing place. And my life that night was changed forever. Because I went to that church that night. Can't remember what he sung. Can't remember his testimony. I don't think there was any preaching that night, but that was the night the Holy Ghost would not let me go. The conviction was so powerful, I had to do something about it. Couldn't put it off any longer. Finally, it's the great deciding place, isn't it? The cross is the place of decision that determines your destiny. It's the great deciding place. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the Lord waits, and he waits, and he waits for a decision. Once men hear the gospel, the ball is firmly in their court. We can't save anybody. We would love if we had the power to save all of our family, but we can't. 
If we had the power, we would love all of our relatives to be saved, but we can't. If we had the power, we'd love everybody in that office, in that classroom, in that street we live, but we can't. But what we have the power to do where and when we can is to share the gospel. And then when we do, the ball is in their court. And then we can pray for them and ask the Holy Spirit to bring them to that deciding place where they make that decision for the Lord Jesus. All of us in here tonight, at some point or other, made that decision. And what a decision that was. Amen? And we have never regretted it. My only regret was I should have made it years before. That is my lasting regret. Should have done it years before. Wasted all of those years not doing it. But I finally came to the place of decision. And so did you. Boy, that was a big sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this Easter weekend, help us, Lord, not to forget or be negligent about reminding ourselves about the cross. Help us to keep it central in our lives, in our preaching, in our thinking, in our witness. Lord, your cross is still changing lives all over the world. It has not lost its power to change. No wonder the enemy hates it because it's a symbol of his defeat. So we give you thanks for this tonight, Lord. Bless you for the victory in it. And thank you that our enemy has truly forever been defeated. And Jesus, you're on the throne tonight. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty but the throne is filled. So we give you thanks, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.